0: Alright, go ahead and grab a seat. We're going to go ahead and begin. I've been having so much fun this this wonderful, harsh winter that we've been having. I keep sending my brother pictures of my boys at the beach and stuff. He's out in out in New York, having to dig out to his cars, I go, "Oh man, it was really rough. It was. I wish we had air conditioning. This has been such a harsh winter." That's how I show love to my family members. So if I pick on you, it means I love you, D Renfro. Okay. Um, so we are we are beginning a new study today, and I was telling Kathy last night, I am so excited to start this. I feel like a junior high girl at a Taylor Swift concert. I'm just like, let's get it going. So uh, something I've been looking forward to for a while, but uh, before I get to what the study is actually going to be, don't look at the screens because, you know, but um, before we actually get to the study, we're going to be going through Romans. I simply want to share with you why we're going to be studying Romans. We live in a time of, of tremendous cultural shift. There are, it, it almost feels like the sand upon which our... our our society's moral norms are built is, is just changing and shifting and ebbing and flowing day by day. Things that were taboo to a generation or two ago today are celebrated. And so we, Jesus also warned us, don't build your lives. Don't build your homes. Don't build your worldviews on the shifting sands because then you're in trouble when the storms come. Instead, build your worldview, your, your perspective your values, upon the unchanging Word of God, the rock, so that when those storms come, you won't be blown and tossed around and you won't it won't come crashing down. And so every year we as an elder board and, and pastors get away and just kind of go, where is God leading us? What does He want for our church this year? And this year we landed at the vision that for the entire year, we really want to focus ourselves on rooting ourselves deep down in God's truth and the bedrock of his word. So that when those storms come, when social change comes, when people begin to scream that something that, that scripture says, Oh hold on a second. And people begin to say, no, no, don't worry about that. We need to live this way. Instead, we won't shift and turn but we also want to look at how we need to approach these things because quite honestly There are some very polarizing issues That that are being addressed these days and we need to know how to address them with love and humility and compassion So that we don't become people who simply push people away from jesus christ rather than welcoming him in Toward that end our vision for this year is to be rooted we want to ground our faith in God's truth, and toward that end, we are going to be looking and studying over the next twenty weeks through the the letter that Paul wrote to the Roman Church, the letter of Romans, because Romans is one of those books that I I, I feel it is probably the richest single uh, book of the Bible in terms of a theological worldview. It deals with so much. It's meat, and we're going to have to chew on it quite a bit. I simply want to share with you a couple of things that people throughout the centuries have said about Romans. Martin Luther, whose relationship with God was radically altered when he was teaching through this book. He wrote, Romans is worthy not only that every Christian should know it, word for word, by heart, I'm not there yet, but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much. And the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and tastes. John Calvin wrote, if we have gained a true understanding of this epistle, this letter to the Romans, then we have an open door to all of the most profound treasures of Scripture. And then John Stott, who is a more contemporary theologian and pastor, writes that Romans is the fullest, plainest, and grandest statement of the gospel in the New Testament. So we can't even begin to underestimate the value of this letter. But as I mentioned, it is meaty. It's going to be something we're going to have to chew on and take in small chunks. We're not going to be charging through entire chapters in a week. We're going to take our time with it. Today we're going to try to tackle about 17 verses. But before we even get to those, before we open the book of Romans, I simply want to give you some context. I want to talk a little bit about what Romans is and also what it's not. I'll begin with what it's not. Romans is not a systematic theology. What I mean by that is there are books that I have on my shelf that if I have any question about God, the world, or mankind that I could think of, I can go to those systematic theologies that are thousands of pages long and I can find an answer where he's writing specifically to answer that question. That is not what Romans is. It is not a systematic theology where he was sitting down to try to answer every question we might have about who God is, who man is, and how the world is supposed to operate. Instead, it's what theologians call um, an occasional theology, meaning it was occasioned by specific circumstances. The writer was writing to address things that were going on in the world that, that he resided in, but also that to the, the people that he was writing to. He was writing to address some very specific things going on in their lives. And he uses the gospel as the filter, the lens through which he looks at those things. And so we see the gospel played out in practice through this, this book. So it was ridiculously relevant to his intended readers some 2,000 years ago. And as we're going to find over the next 20 weeks, it is remarkably relevant to us today. Because in a lot of ways, we live in a very similar culture to the one that he's writing to. We live in a culture and a time uh, where we are being challenged with some really big questions. And Romans, although it may not speak specifically to those questions, actually shows us how we can begin to grapple with them. And in some cases, it does speak specifically to those questions. So, what is it not? It's not systematic, but it is an occasional theology. It's also a letter, and this is really important for us to remember. The Bible is God's word. God, through the Holy Spirit, inspired the writing of this, and so we can found our lives, our worldviews upon it. It is utterly trustworthy in asking, how should I live? However, it was also written by human beings who were living in their own context, writing in their own language, and they were writing to very specific people. Now, the danger is, our tendency is to open the Bible and begin reading, and the first question that we ask of Scripture is, well, what does this mean to me today in 2015? And when we do that, when we simply disregard the historical context into which it was written, we can alter Scripture. We can interpret it to to support just about anything that we want. So, before we can begin to really interpret it in 2015, we need to understand it in its original historical context. We need to go, what was this author saying to the people he was writing to then? What did it mean to them? Because it's never going to say something to us that it never was intended to say to them. And that needs to be the, the kind of test for our interpretation. Does that make sense? Okay? So the first thing we're going to do before we dive into this scripture is we are going to d- get some cultural context. I want to share with you who wrote it, who he was writing it to, and some of the things that spurred the writing on. Go ahead and grab your Bible if you've got it and turn with me to Romans chapter 15. Don't worry, we're going to actually start in chapter 1, but I want to show you some things there in 15. If you guys are keeping notes, the author of Romans is a guy named Paul. Now, Paul was originally, his, his name was originally Saul, and he was originally one of the most outspoken, most powerful enemies of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was actually, in the book of Acts, we see Paul standing there watching and, and giving his blessing to the stoning of the first Christian martyr, a guy named Stephen. And then Paul said, well, you know what? This, this message that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, this thing is spreading and I need to dampen it down. So I'm going to go over to this city now. I want to go over here and I want to try to, to crush out the, the fledging flame of this movement there as well. And so he's, he's traveling to another city and Jesus Christ stopped him on the road and said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And in that moment, he began to shift Saul's heart and he renamed him Paul. And he said, you are now going to be an, a, an, a proponent You are going to become somebody who articulates the gospel message. But I'm not going to have you do it just for other Jews. I am calling you to share this good news. It's good news of great joy for everybody, not just for the Jews. So I want you to take this message to the non-Jews. We know them as Gentiles. That's what the Bible calls them. Gentiles are simply people who are not of Jewish descent. And he commissioned Paul to begin sharing the good news to the Gentiles. And so Paul began to do that. Can we throw the, the map up there? All right, so this is a map of the Roman Empire, okay? You got, as you can see, this is the, that doesn't work, so we're going to go here. This is the Mediterranean Sea here. Over here is Jerusalem, so this is Israel. Down here is Egypt. Over here is Africa. And then we've got Italy. We've got Spain. And then we've kind of got the Asian countries over here. Paul began in Jerusalem and he began to travel in these regions right here. Over the course of about 25 years, he began to take the gospel message to all of these cities. He would go into a city. He made tents. That was his occupation so that he could actually do the vocation or his calling to share the good news with people he interacted with. So he's making tents during the day, and then he would have conversations with people. He would go into the synagogues, and he would begin to share the good news of Jesus Christ, how the Messiah had actually come. And people would go, oh, that's interesting. We want to hear more about this. And then some people actually gave, gave their lives to Jesus Christ and said, I want to follow him. He trained them up. He started small churches, and then he moved on to the next city. And over 25 years, during three different trips or missionary journeys, he spent his time here ministering to and sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ with Gentiles who ultimately became Gentile Christians. While he was doing that, he also began to say, you know what? Back here in Jerusalem, we've got an awful lot of widows and orphans and people who are very, very needy. And and some of these Gentile Christians up here are a lot more well-to-do. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to begin to take up collections from them. I'm going to ask them to donate money that we can use to support Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem. Now, this is way more than just him helping, you know, it wasn't more than a Christian gesture of goodwill. Because for him, he began to recognize that Jews and Gentiles don't always get along. And this was a declaration that in God's kingdom, there was no difference between Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, free, that we are all on a level playing field. And in God's eyes, we are all one. That was important for him. And so taking up that collection, that offering for the Jerusalem Christians was a, a, a sign or a declaration that the Gentiles were one and the same with Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem. And so all that is a little bit. He explains, he declares very clearly in Romans chapter 15 what his plan is. So let's begin reading in verse 19. Now, actually, we'll start in verse 20. He says, it has always been my ambition, this is Romans 15, verse 20, it has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ is not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. All right, so already he's been kind of going around here and planting churches, and he's exhausted those areas. He feels like I've gotten a pretty good covering. It's time for something new. Let's jump down to verse 23. But now there is no more place for me to work in these regions that I've been in so now I'm looking for new ground to begin sharing the gospel message. I plan to do so when I go to Spain. This is now the farthest area of the Roman Empire that Paul could go to. It's on the exact opposite end of the Mediterranean Sea. That is his target audience. I'm going to take the gospel to them, he says. So verse 24, I plan to, go, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you in Rome while I'm passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a little while Now, however, i'm on my way to jerusalem for the service of the lord's people there for macedonia and acacia Those places that i've been visiting have been pleased to make a contribution to the poor amongst the lord's people in jerusalem They were pleased to do it and indeed they owe it to them For the gentiles have shared in the jews in the jews spiritual blessings And so they owe it to the jews to share with them in their material blessings So, after I've completed this task and have made sure that they have received this contribution, I'm going to head to Spain and I'm going to visit you along the way. So, here was Paul's plan. He was probably in Corinth, which is this city right in here. He was planning on going back to Jerusalem. It was probably about 57 AD when he was writing this letter. I'm here, I'm going to go back to Jerusalem, I'm going to drop off the money and then I'm going to make my way to Rome. I'm going to spend a little bit of time with you, I want to share the good news of what's going on, I want, I want you guys to support me in prayer, maybe financially, maybe even a few of you are going to come with me and then we're going to head out to Spain. Rome will be my, my jumping off point ultimately to the new mission field that I feel God is calling me to. We got that? So, one of the ways that we can understand the book of Romans is it is an introductory letter. Paul's never been to Rome. He's planted a lot of churches, but he, has never, he did not plant the church in Rome. And so it is a way of introducing himself to them and saying, hey, here's what's coming up. I'm really excited to meet you and I just want to let you know a little bit about myself and my good, the good news. But it's more than that because we only have half of the equation. We know who, it was, who wrote it, but now let's take a look at who it was written to, this church that resides in Rome. As I've already mentioned, Paul didn't plant this church. We're not sure exactly who did, but we do have some evidence that we can point to. Because in the book of Acts, right at the very beginning, there was a day called Pentecost, some 50 days after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. Pentecost was the day when the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus' disciples, who at that point had been huddled in an upper room for fear that there was going to be retribution because they're Their rabbi had just been crucified. They were terrified that people were going to do the same thing to them. And the Holy Spirit came upon them in that upper room. And they went from being terrified to being outspoken uh, martyrs, which just means a witness. Martyrs for the gospel. We want to share the good news. And they began to do so in tons of different languages. Boldly proclaiming the gospel. And since it was uh, a, a Jewish holiday, there were... Thousands and thousands of people from all over the world who had come to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost, the festival there. And we know from the book of Acts that there were Jews from Rome that were in Jerusalem on the day that they began to preach. And on that day, some 3,000 people gave their lives to Jesus Christ, believed the gospel message, and said, I'm following Jesus. Why does that matter? Because it's likely that some of those Jewish converts to christianity traveled back to rome and began to go into the synagogues and share hey we we learned that the messiah has come his name was jesus from nazareth he is the christ the risen lord the one that he and he was killed for us but he rose from the dead the grave was empty now just a a small aside people will say well how do we know that the grave was empty right i think perhaps the single greatest evidence for the empty tomb, is the fact that men and women who were terrified of retribution, so they were huddling in an upper room, were willing to go and begin to proclaim the good news so much so that they were willing to die for this gospel message. I don't know about you, but if I know something to be an out-and-out lie and it's going to cost me my life to perpetuate it, I was joking. It was, you know, whatever. And they didn't. They were willing to die for their faith that Jesus was the Christ, the risen king. And so we have Jewish Christians now who are coming into Rome and sharing in the synagogues. Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, the long-awaited Christ, God's anointed redeemer of his people. And he has, he has paid the penalty for our sins. And more people began to give their hearts to Jesus Christ. And the church probably was birthed out of the synagogues. And then it began to spill outside into the streets. And Gentiles or non-Jews began to hear the good news. And many of them began to give their hearts to Jesus Christ. And the church was born in Rome. However, we also know that this gospel message was not embraced by all the Jews. They began to fight openly about their disagreement about whether Jesus was the Christ or not. In fact, we know that there was an emperor at the time. His name was Claudius. And in 49 AD, some eight years before Paul wrote the letter to the Romans, in 49 AD, Claudius basically said, I am so sick and tired of you Jews arguing about this Christus or Christ or whatever it is, get out of Rome. I don't want you here anymore. And all of the the Jews were expelled from Rome. And overnight... The Christian church goes to 100% Gentile. Not a single Jewish Christian is left in their ranks. Now, this is historical. It doesn't say it in the Bible. I'm just, I'm just giving backstory. So this happened, and then about eight years later, Paul writes to the church in Rome. Now, in, in between that time of, of everybody being... All the Jewish Christians being kicked out of Rome and him writing to the Romans... The emperor relented and allowed the Jews to come back in. But when they came back in to Rome and they reengaged in the church, it brought a lot of contention, a lot of conflict. Because you have Gentiles who, for the last several years, have kind of been in charge. And now you have Jewish Christians who are coming in and going, well, what is our place here? And they had very differing perspectives on what it meant to be a Christ follower. Probably the biggest area of contention for jewish christians and gentile christians surrounded this idea of well what place does the law have in our worship right because as a jew we have been given the mosaic law like the ten commandments and other laws that organize and and, and show us how we should live as god's holy people and as jews we feel like you need to be if you want to convert to christianity jesus was a jew So if you want to convert to Christianity, awesome, but you also need to embrace the Mosaic law. And the Gentiles are going, no, we're saved by grace, baby, and grace alone. We don't need the law at all. And so this was a major area of contention that was kind of wrecking the church, splintering it, creating conflict. And it's into that that Paul writes his introductory letter. So he's not simply writing to introduce himself. But he's also writing to try to assuage what's going on in the church. To address some of the conflict that's been going on underneath the surface that was probably spilling over into the streets and was causing a whole lot of people who might have been attracted to this community to go, man, they, they, they seem to bicker a lot. I, I'm not really sure I want to go there. They're not, really not, they're not really marked by love. And so Paul wrote his letter to the Romans both as an introduction, but also to share the gospel in a way that helped to smooth out their understanding of what does it really mean to follow Jesus Christ? What is really required? How do we earn God's love? What is expected of us? What part does the law have to do in our being Christ followers? Does that make sense? That is all context, all backstory. Now let's go to Romans chapter 1. Are we having fun yet? I'm having so much fun. All right. We're going to read through this once. I'm just going to read all the way through it. And then we're going to go back through and we're going to kind of break it down a bit. Romans 1. We're just going to read the first 17 verses. Paul. I'll, I hear some more page turns, so I'll give you just a second. Paul Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all of the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are amongst the Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Because of your faith that is being reported all over the world God whom I serve is my in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son is my witness How constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times And I pray that now at last by god's will the way may be opened for me to come to you I long to see you so that I might impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong That is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but I've been prevented from doing so until now in order that I might have a harvest amongst you just as I have had amongst other Gentiles. I'm obligated both to Greeks and to non-Greeks, both to the wise and to the foolish. That's why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel." Because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Okay, let's go back through this now for a moment. I just want to break this down. What is he trying to do? And the first thing I need to mention is that when we write letters today, we need to keep in mind this whole time, this is a letter. When we write letters, we tend to start with to Josh Stewart. And then we kind of have our thing. And then it from Eric Wayman at the very end. And, and we may give some indication up at the beginning who it is as well, or we just kind of skip to the end. But that's how we tend to structure it. Back in those days, they structured it radically differently. They began by sharing who was writing it. And then they said who they were writing to. And, and then they began to actually do the letter. And so this is just a a very typical introduction. He begins in verse one by introducing himself, the author, Paul, a servant. And we could actually interpret or, or translate servant as slave. I'm Paul. I am a servant or slave of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle. Apostle simply means one who is sent a representative. I have been called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Gospel just means good news. But what is the good news? Well, in verse 2, he's going to tell us what the good news is or at least who the focus of the good news is about. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets, and he is God, the prophet that God promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, Jesus Christ. And then he shares a little bit about who Jesus is. Who, as to his earthly life from, his, from a human perspective... He was a descendant of David. We know that God, when, when David was the king over Israel, said, Listen, one day there will be a king who will, will be from your lineage, who will have a throne that will be established forever. David, your kingdom will be established forever. But David died, and then David's son died, and David's, son, David's grandson died, and so forth, year after year after year, and generation after generation after generation. And he's simply pointing back to the fact that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of that promise to David. That there would always be a king on the throne. Jesus Christ was that human descendant. But he also goes on, as as well as through the spirit of holiness, he was appointed the son of God in power. So he was human from his human lineage, from his human side, he was a descendant of David. But spiritually, he was the son of God. And he was proven so through power. And what power proved that? From his resurrection from the dead. The fact that he raised from the dead was proof that he was who he claimed to be, that he was divine, and that he did what he claimed to do, namely overcome sin and death. So we're talking about Jesus Christ, our Lord. And now Paul says a little bit about his calling that God has placed upon his life. Like, why why are you coming out here, Paul, and why do you think that you have the right to speak into us? He says, through him, through Jesus Christ, we, Paul and the people who are traveling with him, have received grace and apostleship to call all of the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith in Jesus' name. And you also, Romans, you guys are amongst those Gentiles who have been called to belong to Jesus Christ. Therefore, I'm writing this letter, and now he introduces the target audience, who he's written this letter to. Therefore, to all of you in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, hi, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's simply like a salutation. Following me so far? Okay. If you weren't, would you say so? Okay. Verse 8 through verse 13, I'm not going to read it. But this is now his introduction. Hey, guys, I have wanted to come see you for so long. I can't wait to get out of it. Now, there's been some things, you know, I have been ministering up in these other regions. I've been trying to get to you, but don't worry, I'm coming. I've been praying that God would open this door so I can come and share the good news with you and have a harvest with you, just as I've had in other places. And then we get to verse 14. And verses 14 through 17 are a very clear, it's almost like his thesis statement. Those of you who are learning how to write essays, Introduction paragraph. What's the very last thing you write in an introduction paragraph? Very good. I'm so glad you were listening. A thesis statement. Here's what it's all about. This is the main point. This is what it's all going to kind of hinge off of. Well, here's his thesis statements. Verse 14. I am obligated both to Greeks and to non-Greeks. In other words, both to those who have been educated, Hellenized in the Greek way, in culture... And to the non-Greeks or barbarians, those who are uneducated, those who are in the sticks, both to the wise and to the foolish. Now it's interesting that he says, I'm obligated to you. Why is he obligated? Let me give you an example. Imagine one of you comes up to me and says, Eric, I need you to tell Kathy something. Not going to forget, are you? And then you tell me something to tell my wife. At that moment that you have shared with me what I need to tell my wife, I I am obligated to you and to her to share it with her. I have something that you've entrusted to me that I need to give to her. Make sense? In the same way, Paul is saying God has entrusted to me the gospel. But it's not just for me. It's for you. So he's given it to me and now I owe it to you. I'm obligated to share it with you. Both Greeks and non-Greeks, it belongs to them. Both the the learned and, and the foolish, those who have not had education. It's for them. And so he says in verse 15, that's why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also with you who are in Rome, because God has called me to do it. He's entrusted this message to me. And for me not to do it would mean that I'm sinning against him and sinning against you. Verse 16, for I am not ashamed of this gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes first for the Jew, through whom it came, this gospel message, and then for the Gentile who is now being shared with. I find it very interesting here that Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because as as somebody else has said before, you don't say you're not ashamed of something unless you've been tempted to feel ashamed of it at some point. And honestly, the gospel is one of those things that flies in the face of our cultural norms. In a culture that says, You've got to prove your value. You have to perform and earn love from one another. And most of all, from God, you've got to prove that you are worthy of his love. The gospel says just the opposite. You could never prove your value. You could never prove your worthiness. You could never earn his love. But that's what makes this good news. You don't have to. The gospel message is a gospel message that says that the God of the universe, the creator and sustainer of everything, died for you. Something that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians in his introduction to that letter to the Corinthian church, he said because of this, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. To somebody who has a hard time accepting that grace can be given, The gospel message is foolishness. However, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, it is his declaration of God's love for us. That's what this is about. So I'm not ashamed of this. Yes, I know that some people are going to push back and laugh in my face to suggest that Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the creator and sustainer of the world, would take on human flesh and die for us. But that's what he's done. Jesus is our Christ, our Messiah, God's anointed Redeemer. And through him, he has made a way for us to be made right with God. That's the gospel message. And I'm not ashamed of that because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Still with me? Okay. Verse 17. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness... That is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. That verse right there, verse 17, utterly shook the foundations of at least one giant of the faith's worldview. His name was Martin Luther. He lived in the 1500s in Germany, a city called Wittenberg. Martin Luther was a a catholic priest he was a theologian and he was a teacher at the university of wittenberg and in 1515 martin luther was teaching through the book of romans and he came to that verse right there and it shook him because his response upon reading that was not one of excitement it was actually one of revulsion he realized that he had this overwhelming hatred for that verse, and he didn't understand why, so he began to sit with it for a while. What's going on? What is underneath this? And he wrote in one of his writings that he had been basically brought up in, in, the, in medieval Catholicism at that time, that he was fed a steady diet of messages that focused on the fear of God, and hell, and damnation, and judgment, and things that are certainly a part of the message but are not the focus of the message. And he said, I had come to view God as an angry taskmaster. A God who sits in judgment just waiting for me to screw up, rather than a loving Savior who desires relationship. And when I came to that verse, it is almost like this scab got pulled off and all of my feelings of, ugh, why, God, would you make this so difficult? Why would you make a ladder that is so impossible to climb, a gulf that is so wide for me to cross? You are righteous. I'm not. I get it. Why do you expect me to be here when I'm here and there's no way I could possibly bridge that chasm? And so Martin Luther wrote this in his introduction to the book of Romans. He wrote... I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that God is righteous and deals righteously by punishing the unrighteous. My situation was that although I performed my duties as a priest faultlessly, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience. And I had no confidence that my efforts would appease him. Therefore, I did not love a righteous and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet, I clung to the writing of Paul, and I had a great yearning to understand what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the righteousness of God and the statement that the righteous shall live by faith. And then I grasped that the righteousness of God is imparted to us by grace and sheer mercy. God makes us righteous through faith. Therefore, I felt myself to be reborn and have gone through the doors into paradise. The whole scripture took a new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became an inexpressibly sweet and filled me with greater love for him. This passage of Paul became to me a gateway to heaven. And then he writes, if you have a true faith that Christ is your savior, then at once you have a gracious God for faith leads you in and opens up God's God's heart to you, that you should see pure grace and overflowing love. He who sees God as angry does not see him rightly, but only looks upon a curtain as if a dark cloud had been drawn across his face. This was the epiphany. That Luther had at the very beginning of his studies that radically transformed his entire faith it transformed everything because it changed his perspective of God from an angry traffic cop that stands up in heaven waiting for him to screw up waiting for us to screw up so he can punish us. And transforms him into the loving God that he is who would take our sins upon himself who would die in our place. Now I wonder how many of us this morning have walked in here with a similar perspective that Luther had there at the beginning of his study of Romans. I wonder how many of us view God's righteousness as just that. He is righteous and I am not. And there is this insurmountable gulf between us. Now some of you who have this perspective have done everything you can to try to bridge it. You have used religion and good works and being a good person to try to build a ladder to God. But deep down in your heart, like Luther, you begin to feel resentment towards him because you realize no, no matter what you do, you only get here and you still have this much further to go. Or you can only climb this high and the ceiling is thousands of miles above your head. God is righteous and I am not. And so we just get to the point where we go, is there anything... I am worthless. I am a failure. Some of us may have just given up trying. For us, the Christian walk is one of obedience and responsibility. It's drudgery, not joy. You don't come here with the opportunity and the ability to respond. You have responsibilities. You don't come here expectant to interact with your God. You come here... Because it's expected of you. And so you go through a very dark, very dreary, very depressing journey with God. And sometimes you go, is it even worth it? Is he even there? And if he is, why is he so cranky? That was Paul's I'm sorry, that was Martin Luther's perspective. And if that is ours, then we have a misunderstanding of who our God is and what his heart towards us is. Because as Martin Luther sat with verse 17 and read in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is from faith, from first to last. Here's the thing. The gospel message does say that there is a gulf between us, that God is righteous and we are not. It does accept the fact Acknowledge the fact that there is absolutely nothing we can do to earn his love, but it doesn't stop there The gospel message continues to say But it doesn't matter Because what we are unable to do he has already done for us on the cross jesus cross took our sins upon himself and his blood poured down to cover our sins So that when we walk into God's presence, we don't come trembling with fear like a dog who's gotten into the trash and is terrified of punishment. Rather, we come as sons and daughters who know that our father in heaven loves us. Despite the fact that we've rebelled against him, despite the fact that we have screwed up, despite the fact that we are imperfect, he loves us. And he did everything to move towards us. All we need to do is run into his arms. Now, you don't have to take my word for it. Because Jesus shared a story during his ministry that encapsulates the whole heart of the gospel. He shared a story about a young boy. He was a teenager, and quite honestly, he was just ready to go sow his wild oats. He wanted to have some fun. The only problem is he needed money, and in order for him to get his inheritance, his dad needed to die. And one day he's just done waiting. And so he went up to his dad and he said, "Dad?" I kind of wish, well, he didn't say this, but he kind of said, I wish you were dead because I want my stuff that's coming to me, so can you just give me my stuff now so I don't have to wait for you to pass away? Unbelievably rude. His father could have disowned him in a heartbeat for saying something like that, but rather this father in this story who represents God's heart towards us acquiesced. He liquidated a sizable amount of his estate and he gave the money to his son. I love you, son. And his boy took that and ran away to a distant country where he could spend it. It's kind of like he ran off to Vegas. And he partied his inheritance away. And he had friends and hangers on. And they had so much fun. And he was living the life he thought he always wanted. Until one day the money ran out. And so his friends ran out. And he found himself in a pigsty, covered in the muck of his chosen lifestyle. Filthy, hungry, impoverished. He he looks over and he sees the food that the pigs are eating and he he longs to eat the food that would have been considered detestable moments before. And as he looks at himself covered in the muck of the mire, he just goes, my gosh, how far I've fallen. What an unbelievable failure I am. And to think that the servants in my father's household live so much better than I'm living right now. I know I could never go back home and have my father accept me as his son. But my father is a compassionate, grace-filled man. So maybe he will accept me back as a servant. Maybe I can work for him. It's got to be better than what I'm living like now. And so picks himself up and he tries to wipe the grime off and he probably just grinds it into his already disgusting clothes. And he begins that long walk of shame home. And as he's going, he's thinking in his mind, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? I need my elevator speech. Um, Dad, I screwed up. I I was rude to you. And I know that I do not deserve to be your son. I know that I could never possibly be accepted back as your boy. But could you please, 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 please find it in your heart to accept me back? as one of your servants. Can I work for you? And as he begins to walk home, he he gets near his home and he comes up over the rise and now the perspective of the story shifts and we see the father who is on his porch looking out at the horizon and he sees his son come up over the hill. Now we might expect this father as an angry traffic cop to cross his arms and let his boy make that long Long walk of shame home. Watching him with disdain and disappointment and all of the I told you so's. We might have expected this father to hold it over his head and grind his nose into his mistakes. But that's not what this father does. This father that represents our God's heart towards us. No, he picks his robes up, which in a most undignified manner, and he runs as fast as he can to his boy. And when he gets there, he doesn't even give his son the time to begin getting the first words of his, I, I screwed up speech. He throws his arms around his son. He picks him up and he twirls him around and he starts going, my son, my boy is home. I missed you so much. Oh, my boy. And he goes to a servant, quick, go and get a new robe and go get new sandals and go get a new ring for my boy because my son is home. And you, go kill the fatted calf. We're having a party. My son is home. And that is the way our father feels towards us. That's the good news. That although we have rebelled against our father in heaven and we have said, I want nothing to do with you. I want to do it my way. I want to be the captain of my ship. I can do a way better job than you can. Our Father in Heaven allows us to run, gives us the freedom to make those choices. And when we come to the end of ourselves and say, Oh my goodness, if only, if only He would accept me back. Well, guess what? He's never left us, not for a moment. Even when we didn't acknowledge His presence there, He was there with us. And he's just waiting for us to turn back to him so he can throw his arms around us. He has already done everything that we could not do for ourselves to make us right in his eyes, to declare us righteous, so that when he looks at us, we are not, he does not see sinners, he sees saints. It simply means a saved sinner. He doesn't see screw ups, he sees his sons and daughters, whom he has created in his image, endowed with unique gifts and abilities. And it brings him so much joy to simply watch us grow into the men and women he has created us to be. And so this morning, I would imagine that there are many of us who have walked in here with a picture of God as an angry traffic cop with his arms crossed just waiting for us to mess up. And maybe you've been trying to be good enough. Maybe you've been trying to earn his love. Maybe you have been trying to erect a ladder of religiousness and good deeds and self-sacrifice so that he will somehow find it in his heart to forgive us and love us. And guess what? You don't have to do that anymore because the gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ is he has already shown his hand. He has already declared to us, I love you, just come home. Let me throw my arms around you. Let me clean you up. Just come home. Stop trying to be good enough and just rest in the fact that I love you. And so this morning, the invitation is simply a declaration and it can be a declaration for some of us who have never said yes to Jesus Christ in our lives. Maybe we've been running from him. Maybe we've been resisting him. And it might be a declaration For those of us who have been walking with him for a very long time, and we're in the passenger seat, and we are so tempted so often to reach over and try to take the steering wheel from him, the invitation this morning is simply to declare, God, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, every moment, every second of my life, I need you. Please come into my life and clean me up in a way that I can't do. And Pete, I'm going to invite you guys to come forward. It is simply a declaration of God, I need you. The good news is he loves us more than you could ever possibly fathom in a more pure sense. His love is not dependent upon our actions. It is not dependent upon our performance. You do not have to earn his love. You've already got it. So now may we As a family who have been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, unified by his sacrificial act, may we, a church that is made up predominantly of Gentiles, with a few Jews sprinkled in, may we simply declare, God, we need you. And that is a wonderful, wonderful place to come. So, Father, thank you so much for loving us. Thank you for the good news that you've done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Would you be glorified in our worship this morning? Would you be glorified in the cry of our heart of our desperate need for you? And would you use us to shine as light as we become imperfect ambassadors of the good news that what we could not do for ourselves, you've already done for us. That through faith, we are declared righteous. Because it is by faith we have been saved, not through works. It is a gift of God so that not a single one of us can boast that we have earned this on our own. We have done this by our own strength and internal fortitude. So glorify yourself in us, your family, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Lord, I need you.